Good evening, everyone. My name is Quinn Eastman, if you don't know me yet. And tonight's reading is from Matthew 9, 18 to 38. So the words should be on the screen. Please follow me as I read Matthew 9, 18 to 38. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come, put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak... I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue's leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him, and the crowd had been put outside he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this sped through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked them, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. When they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed, could not talk, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be able to be with you here again tonight and to uh, open God's uh, word with you. Let's uh, come to God in prayer and then we'll dive in and have a look at the second half of Matthew 9. Let's pray. Gracious, loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
And Lord, we ask now that you would uh, help us to uh, be attentive to the things that you are wanting to uh, teach us and uh, help us in uh, tonight. And most importantly, Lord, um, point us to your son, Jesus, and give us uh, the faith uh, to be able to trust and believe in him and to be able to live in him. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Back in January 2009, uh, Barack Obama swept uh, to power as the President of the United States with an amazing uh, amount of euphoric support. Uh, He was known for his uh, gift of uh, public speaking. His uh, powerful speeches were reminiscent of um, Martin Luther King Jr. of the 60s. And he revved up audiences uh, into a frenzy of people who were keen to hear what he had to say and were keen to support the things that he was for. The voting public uh, seemed to love it. America, if they'd ever doubted themselves, were starting to to believe again. Hopes were high. In fact, I'd say unrealistically high. Um, With Obama leading the way, they could defeat the global downturn in the economy. They could win the war on terror. They could address all of their problems of social inequality, of racism, uh, fix up the environment, uh, deal with unemployment. But here we are today, 2021, And 12 years later, a cold half dose of reality has set in. Uh, The global financial crisis hit hard. The war on terror is still limping along. And in the end, Obama struggled to get any kind of agreement with uh, the other side of uh, politics so that it could actually have an impact on the economy, on unemployment, to find support for his version of um, affordable health care for people. And despite having their first ever non-Anglo president, issues around race are more tense today than they've ever been. Of course, following from uh, Mr Obama, we had Donald Trump and his uh, four years in office. And the other side of American politics um, elected him with the hope that he was going to be America's saviour that he would make America great again, that he'd build that great wall across um, the the southern border and stop all the immigrants, that he'd uh, be tough with all those um, people overseas uh, in other countries that seem to be asking for help but always expecting America to pay for it. And we want to show the world that uh, we're strong, we're tough, but in particular we want to look after our American people, number one. And in the end, Trump didn't do much better. In the end, neither Obama nor Trump could really live up to the expectations that supporters had for them. On both sides of politics, both men were put up on the same kind of level, almost of of Jesus, as as messiahs. These people were going to save us and make our country great. And in the end, neither succeeded. It's the same kind of expectations we find alive and well in first century Israel in the time of Jesus. The Jews were looking for a saviour, a God-appointed Messiah who'll sweep in and fix up all their problems, who'll bring health care and prosperity, who'd bring unity, who'd deal with the terror threat of the Romans. 
the promises uh, were all there in the writings of the prophets. And the people, they were waiting for God to deliver. And expectations were high. There were promises of a son, a son of David. God had promised King David that a son would come from his line and his kingdom would rule forever. Um, If you want to check that out, have a look at 2 Samuel 7 sometime. It's a great um, statement of God's covenant with David and what his hopes were both for David, but also for his future hopes of an eternal kingdom. And then, of course, there are promises about a shepherd. Um, In the prophet Ezekiel, God rebukes the shepherds who are leading the people. And the shepherds were the priests and the elders. And, of course... Ezekiel's prophecy uh, tells us that they were selfish, greedy, and incompetent. And in fact, rather than protecting the sheep, they actually fed on the sheep. And God promised to rescue his sheep. In fact, he promised a different kind of shepherd. He promised to send a son of David who would shepherd them God's way. Uh, In Ezekiel 34, uh, from verse 22, God says... I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And the people were waiting for that expectantly. But that's not all. When God's king came, the son of David, the special shepherd, he'd bring in a new kingdom, unlike anything ever been before. And the prophets were full of promises about what this kingdom would be like, promises of peace and health and prosperity. Uh, Promises like Isaiah 35 uh, from verse 4, where it says, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's what God had promised long ago in the Old Testament, and that's what the people were expecting. And so it's with that expectation hanging in the air that Jesus arrives on the scene. He's preaching about the kingdom of God and healing all sorts of diseases. Uh, Back in chapter 4 of Matthew and verse 23, there's this summary given there of his ministry. It says from verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And it's no wonder the crowds are following him, because they've got high expectations, and Jesus seems to be fulfilling them. 
preaching about a new kingdom, bringing health and healing and happiness. And we see the sort of kingdom that he's on about in the chapters that follow. In chapters 5 through 7, he's preaching about it, about a new set of values, a new way of looking at things. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus giving a taste of what this kingdom of God is like, of health and restoration, of peace and the destruction of evil. And that includes the verses we're going to look at tonight from chapter 9, verse 18. Um, And of course, when we get to the end of chapter 9, we read these verses, uh, these words again in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Sound familiar? Well, it's almost exactly the same as chapter 4, verse 23, isn't it? If you like, they're two bookends that summarise the stuff that's going on in between. Chapters 5 to 9 are a window into the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in, a kingdom that God promised and that he's now delivering on. Well, the expectation was there, and now here we see the reality. And in these few verses from chapter 9, there are some true believers among the people that Jesus meets, some people full of desperate expectation, as well, of course, of some who want absolutely nothing to do with him. So first up, we meet um, a leader or a ruler of the synagogue. And we hear about the situation of his daughter. This is a guy we read about in verse 18 who's used to people showing him respect. Uh, And yet he comes to Jesus and in front of everyone, he bows before Jesus. He's desperate. His daughter has just died. Do you hear that? His daughter is dead. But he believes that if Jesus comes and lays his hands on her, that she'll live. That's extraordinary faith. I can't think of anyone else who expects that of Jesus. I mean, there's the Roman centurion we saw back in uh, chapter 8. I mean, his faith is huge. He believes that if Jesus just said the word, his servant back at home would be instantly healed. Jesus could do that from a great distance. He didn't even need to travel and lay his hands on. He just had to say the word and it had happened. I mean, that's faith. And even Mary, the sister of Lazarus in John 11, is disappointed when Jesus arrives after Lazarus has been buried. I mean, she says, you know, she's crying and she says, if only you'd got here earlier. You know, I believe, you know, if he'd been still alive, you could have healed him. But, you know, sickness you can do something about, but not death. Jesus, if only you'd got here earlier. But this ruler is clinging on to the belief that Jesus can even do something about death. It's the desperate expectation of a father. He believes it because God had promised it. Promised that his kingdom would be about life from the dead. In Ezekiel 37, he shows the prophet a valley of dry bones that God breathes life into. I mean, that valley symbolic of the nation of Israel. And the bones rattle back to life and slowly the the ligaments uh, and tendons all form and join the bones together and muscle and these things become living, breathing people again. And God promises that's what he's going to do 
when he breathes his Holy Spirit into people. And the ruler dared to believe that for his daughter. And we get this bit of a jolt almost in the story here. It's a bit of a, one of those hit the pause button moments because in the middle of telling us this story about the synagogue ruler, suddenly um, while they're on their way to the house, another desperate woman appears. And this person, we're told, has been suffering menstrual bleeding for 12 years straight. There's the physical problem. You know, she's not well. But even worse, for Jews, she's ceremonially unclean. No one can touch her. She is a social outcast. I mean, she touches Jesus' cloak in secret for fear of rejection. And I'm sure she knows all about rejection. She desperately believes that a touch of Jesus will cleanse her. I mean, in Jewish culture, it should actually work the other way around, that a touch from her would make Jesus unclean. But it doesn't. Her trust in Jesus' power draws the healing from him, and she's clean. Jesus turns to her and gives her the best news she's heard for 12 years. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the word that um, the gospel writer uses for healed here is the same word as saved. Your faith has saved you. But even more, Jesus gets to the dead girl's house. He waves the professional mourners away. They won't be needed anymore. And he goes inside, takes her by the hand, and she gets up. Literally, she's resurrected. Another situation where a dead body should have contaminated Jesus, but instead it's the other way around. Jesus infects the dead body with life. One girl saved, the next girl resurrected. That's the kingdom that Jesus is showing us a window into. Life, wholeness and restoration. Salvation and resurrection. Next up, we find that there are two blind men following him around. And in verse 27, they say, have mercy on us, son of David. That's a a title for God's Messiah, the one God had promised who was coming to bring in his eternal kingdom. A kingdom of lame people walking and blind people seeing. We saw that in Isaiah 35, we read just before. And the blind people seeing is the bit the blind guys are really interested in. And Jesus says to them, do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And once again, with a touch, Jesus heals them. And then in verse 30, he warns them not to spread the news, which always seems a funny thing to do, considering in the next chapter, he sends his disciples out to do exactly that. But remember, remember what the expectation was. Remember what the blind men had called Jesus, son of David, which, as well as what the Bible had to say about it, had now come with a whole bunch of other baggage along the way and a whole lot of political expectations to it as well of a new kingdom where Israel would be top dog again, where the Roman oppressors would be defeated and there'd be peace and wholeness and prosperity. And Jesus doesn't want to encourage that sort of expectation because the kingdom he's bringing 
isn't that sort of kingdom. Because rather than Rome being the enemy, it's Satan that's in Jesus' target sites. And we see that in part in the next person we're introduced to, a man who's been possessed by a demon. And he's mute. The evil spirit has got hold of his tongue. And yet a word from Jesus and the man's released. The spirit's gone and the man's restored. That's the enemy that Jesus is fighting. God's kingdom beating up Satan's kingdom. When Jesus speaks, Satan must obey. And of course, at this point, we get this funny misunderstanding, don't we? Where um, some Pharisees reckon that if the demons are listening to Jesus, it must be because Jesus is the prince of demons. You know, evil listens to the master of evil. But of course, they've got it completely wrong. Jesus is all about overturning the reign of Satan and bringing in God's reign instead, replacing sickness with health, replacing death with life and blindness with sight, replacing isolation with restoration and peace and replacing evil with good. And just in case we'd forgotten what his kingdom's about, we get a summary there again in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. That's the reality of the kingdom. It's the beginning of the kingdom, a window we can look through. We get a taste, a glimpse, a bit of an entree. But even with Jesus doing all that, God's kingdom isn't something that automatically and instantly and totally breaks through and replaces the old way of working in this world yet. Do you see Jesus' reaction in verse 36? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Despite the healing, Despite the teaching and preaching, despite Satan's army being driven back, the people are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. A shepherd God had promised. A shepherd who'd bring in an eternal kingdom and look after his sheep completely. Because the leaders who were supposed to be doing it, leaders like the Pharisees who'd written Jesus off, were leading the people astray. The blind leading the blind. What Jesus wanted instead was people who'd look to him in desperate expectation, who'd trust him, harassed and helpless people. People like the the synagogue ruler, the father, like the sick woman, like the blind men, like the demon-possessed man. And as the good shepherd, he'd have compassion on them, Not just healing and restoring them, not just saving and resurrecting them, but ultimately laying down his life for his sheep so they could live beyond this life, live as part of God's eternal kingdom for eternity. That's the reality of the kingdom. But what should our response be? You and I live a long way from the world where Jesus walked around in. But in lots of ways, it's still very much the same. It's a world that's still full of desperate people, 
of harassed and helpless people, people looking for answers, people looking for relief. And perhaps that might even describe you this evening. How should you respond? Well, firstly, to believe, to have faith. Look to Jesus. If he's bigger than death and Satan and chronic illness, then he's bigger than whatever you've got going on. But more than that, he's not only the one who's able to deal with it, but who has the compassion to go with it. The good shepherd who wants to rescue harassed, helpless and desperate sheep and bring them into peace and rest. And if he's big enough for your stuff, then he's big enough for the stuff your friends who don't know Jesus have got going on as well. Whether they recognise it or not, they need a shepherd. Do you believe that? You believe it for yourself, but do you believe it for your neighbour? for your workmate, for the people that you play sport with, your family. If you believe it, you'll share it. But also if you believe it, you'll pray. Jesus sees crowds of harassed and helpless sheep. He sees a world that needs him and he says to his disciples, pray. Verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Do we really believe that Jesus is the answer to the problems of this world? Why don't we pray for workers? Why don't we ask God to prepare them and train them and raise them up and equip them and support them and send them out and to give them fruit? Let's pray regularly and specifically and passionately and faithfully. But don't just pray. Go. Jesus isn't content for the disciples just to pray for, for gospel workers, that, they're going to, that they themselves are going to be workers. You'll see next time as we move into chapter 10 um, that Jesus sends his disciples out now for themselves to preach the good news of the kingdom, to be workers in the harvest field. And it's the same with us. We can't pray for workers if we don't believe the harvest needs workers. If we don't believe the sheep are harassed and helpless and need a shepherd. But if we believe... And if we pray, then we need to go and to be involved in the work. Now, I'm not telling you tonight that you've got to immediately go to Bible college and plan to go overseas and to be a missionary. But if you want to, stand in line. I'd love to talk to you. It doesn't have to be full time. Any single Christian, in fact, every single Christian should be a worker on God's harvest. And you can do that across your back fence. You can do that talking to your neighbour or your mechanic or your mailman. You can be a worker while you wait to pick up your kids. If these verses show Jesus living out the kingdom, if these verses are a window into God's kingdom, then you and I, as we live out the Christian life, we are that too. As we live out the kingdom, as individuals and families and as a church, we are a window into God's kingdom. 
a window that desperate, helpless and harassed people can look through to find Jesus. Do you believe it? Will you pray it? Will you live it out? Let me pray for us now. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you at the right time in history, you sent your son Jesus into this world to be its saviour. That he came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and demonstrated that uh, in his compassion for people and in the way that he used his gifts to be able to bring healing uh, to people. Father, as we have come to find uh, faith and trust in Jesus for ourselves and to have our sins forgiven and to know that in doing that we now have a, a relationship with our Heavenly Father that is both for, for now but also for eternity, help us to see the need out there for others in our world to know and to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for them. That, Father, that we would pray for the growth of the kingdom of God around the world, that we would pray that there would be workers uh, for the harvest fields of that kingdom. And that, Father, as we are enabled, that you would motivate us uh, to, to work in whatever capacity that we can uh, to share the hope that we have with Jesus um, with the people that you place around us. Lord, give us uh, faith to believe and to stand in these things. Lord, by your spirit, enable us uh, to pray. And Lord, help us uh, to live out uh, what it means to love, serve and follow Jesus in all that we say and in all that we do. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>